Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So let's talk paper scissors. Last year, I read How to Break Up with Your Phone by award-winning writer and science journalist Catherine Price, and it was eye-opening, to say the least. We understand that our phones are addictive, and that there's often more productive or sociable or energizing or fill-in-the-blank ways to use our time, but we turn to our phones because they're soothing or easy or distracting or fill-in-the-blank. I feel like I've had a tenuous relationship with my phone since my first Nokia 3310 almost 20 years ago, but our rocky relationship has been extra dysfunctional in recent years. Addictive, algorithm-infused social media is challenging to resist. All-too-easy access to our ever-present phones means that I'm picking it up dozens of times each day, reinforcing the damaging cycle of dysfunction. Dear phone, We need a break. And it's not me, it's you. I've broken up with social media on my phone before, which represents a big chunk of my current total screen time. You know, deleting Instagram for a period of time and removing myself from Facebook altogether. But it never sticks. And why would it? It's designed to be addictive. And perhaps in the greatest act of not talking the talk, I'm using it right now to conveniently preach my distaste and distrust using the very platform I wish to condemn. It's messed up. Nevertheless, reading Price's book a couple of years ago reinforced my need to reevaluate my relationship with my phone. Now, I'm not denying that there are some very good reasons to use my phone, such as using it for email or project management and calendar apps, not to mention actually using it as a phone once in a while to call my mom. But I think we can have a healthy, functional relationship with this ever-present object in our lives, and we can also have a less healthy, dysfunctional desire to pick it up all day long. One thing among many that I'm concerned with is how my phone use is impacting my creative thinking, both in the short term and in the long term. This is one of the central themes in this episode and the lens through which I've reread Price's work. Now this little gem of a book is split up into two sections. Part one is called The Wake Up and part two is called The Breakup. Today's episode will dive into both sides of that. The Wake Up Early in the book, Price wastes no time making a case for why we should care about putting down our phones. She says this, While research on wireless mobile devices is in its early stages, unsurprising given that they've barely been around for 10 years now, what is known so far suggests that spending extended time on them has the power to change both the structure and the function of our brains, including our abilities to form new memories, think deeply, focus, and absorb and remember what we read. 
Yikes. Now, smartphones are literally rewiring our brains, changing the way we think, which undoubtedly has consequences for how we problem solve, experience creativity, and perhaps most importantly, understand and cope with our own thoughts and emotions, for better or for worse. Price goes on to say this. And the more I read, the more I became convinced that our attachment to our devices is not a trivial issue. It is a real problem. I go so far as to say that it's a societal addiction, and we need to do something about it. These sobering words are a stark reminder that our phones are changing our brains. What's just as concerning and infuriating is that this is done at our expense for a hefty profit. Price goes on to say this. Not only are our phones and app companies aware of their products' neurological effects, but they pack their products with features that will trigger them, with the explicit goal of getting us to spend as much time and attention as possible on our devices. Now, I suppose I already knew that companies are purchasing our attention, but to have it spelled out in black and white makes me feel like a real sucker. Social media is offered to us for free, after all, so how can tech companies be some of the richest on the planet? Well, we're not the customer. We are the product. We are the product. Our focus is being exchanged for cold, hard cash because with the right algorithms, well-targeted products and services are squeezed into users' feeds, which translates into consumer spending and thereby advertising dollars become well-spent. And what's most clever on the platform's part and intoxicating to many users is that we generate our own content. We're a self-perpetuating, money-making machine. Ramsey Brown is the founder of a startup called Dopamine Labs, a company that helps app companies keep you glued to their products. Price says this. Brown offered the example of Instagram, which he says has created code that deliberately holds back on showing users new likes so that it can deliver a bunch of them in a sudden rush at the most effective moment possible, meaning the moment at which seeing the new likes would discourage you from closing the app. Now, I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-consumer. I'm anti-being taken advantage of. But if I know this in my heart of hearts, why can't I look away from the damn piano playing cat? Why can't I just turn it off? Our attention is being sold, but even when we know we're being tricked, we continue to scroll. It's like watching a magic show where you know that it's all an illusion, a sleight of hand, misdirection, but sawing a woman in half is still really cool to watch and you're curious to see how it will all unfold. We stay and we watch and we scroll and we click because we enjoy dopamine. She's cute. She makes you feel good. And she brings her A-game when you pick up your phone. Price adds the following insight. If your brain learns that checking your phone usually results in a reward, it won't take long before your brain releases dopamine anytime it's reminded of your phone. You'll start to crave it. Ever notice how seeing someone else check their phone can make you want to check yours? Okay, so now I get it. It's like a virtual yawn. And you just felt like checking your phone and you yawned, didn't you? (laughs) 
Now, our phones are designed to offer novelty and do so consistently. According to writer Clay Shirky, the word novel is derived from the printed books of yesteryear, from stories published not long after the commercialization of the printing press, when there was a huge excess press capacity with little content to publish. I mean, you could only print so many Bibles after all. Stories that had never before been written, printed, and published to the masses were literally novel, new and never before seen. But once novelty wears off, less dopamine is released. So producing consistently novel content is necessary to keep users coming back for more. Price reinforces this by saying, what really gets us hooked isn't consistency. It's unpredictability. It's knowing that something could happen, but not knowing when or if that something will occur. This unpredictability is incorporated into nearly every app on our phones. The feel-good hormone, dopamine, is the star of the phone show. Just the thought that there could be new information headed our way, no matter how frightening or factual it may be or not be, is all that's required for a warm and fuzzy hit of dopamine. Addictive behavior is constantly reinforced and built into the algorithms behind our favorite brightly colored squares. But what if what we truly need is a moment of silence? An absence of content, a break, a subtraction, removal of noise, a moment of solitude without a barrage of notifications keeping us placated. As Price writes, if our smartphones excel at one thing, it's making sure we never, ever have to be alone with ourselves. Let that really sink in, and I'll say it again. If our smartphones excel at one thing, It's making sure that we never, ever have to be alone with ourselves. I'm someone who prides myself on not often feeling bored. Give me a pencil and a piece of paper and I will happily spend hours, literally hours, in blissful contentment. Send me outside and I will find a way to have a good time with only the grass or sand or water around me. In the infamous words of my granny and echoed throughout my childhood by my mother, Only boring people are bored. But recently, I've noticed my capacity for contentment without stimulation waning. I'm fidgety. I'm uneasy. In these moments of in-between, I do what any normal person does. I pick up my phone. A few months ago, I spent an entire 60 phoneless minutes floating in a sensory deprivation tank. Yes, it's a little out of the ordinary, but hear me out. The experience took place in a shin-deep pool of warm salt water designed to be the ultimate relaxation experience. I had no stimulation other than a few lights on the ceiling. No shirt, no shoes, no cell service. While the experience wasn't transcendent, or even really pleasurable if I'm being honest, it was eye-opening, and I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to try it. During the float, 
I felt bored more often than I'd like to admit. And not having any concept of time, a few seconds felt like a few minutes, felt like a few hours, I thought seriously about standing up and ending the experience before the 60-minute mark. More than once. I hadn't been unstimulated like that in as long as I can remember. And it was paired with a loss of control in a way that I found genuinely and surprisingly challenging. Being able to check our phones whenever we want and receive a hit of dopamine each time we do is something we take for granted, and I saw the effects of losing it firsthand. But maybe that's exactly what I needed. The way I see it, one of the scariest things I stand to lose in the way of our phones changing our brains is creativity. After all, creativity is often sparked by boredom which is another mental state that our phones are great at helping us avoid. Boredom is a good thing. Author Glennon Doyle has echoed this sentiment in her book, Untamed. She said this, I find myself worrying most that when we hand our children phones, we steal their boredom from them. As a result, we are raising a generation of writers who will never start writing. Artists who will never start doodling. Chefs who will never make a mess of the kitchen. Athletes who will never kick a ball against a wall. Musicians who will never pick up their aunt's guitar and start strumming. In a world where passivity is the new activity and consuming is the new creating, I want more. I expect more. I need more. And while boredom doesn't always feel good in the moment, we should recognize the important role it plays in creativity, in innovation, and in growth. And for these reasons, and many, many more, I vow to put down my phone. The Breakup In her book, Price lays out a number of excellent thoughts and ideas about how to break up with your phone, as well as a complete 30-day program to help you snap out of the negative cycles and build new relationships with your phone. I'm going to highlight just a few high-level key ideas, but there are lots more outlined in the book, so check it out if they're striking a chord. As Price makes very clear in her work, she says this, We're trying to resolve discrepancies between how we say we want to live our lives and how we are actually living our lives. Sure, there may be some uncomfortable moments along the way, but ultimately, breaking up with your phone should make you feel good. Our goal isn't abstinence, it's consciousness. She suggests that the best place to start is to download a tracking app, and iPhones now have this feature built in, to assess important stats about your phone use. How many times do you pick up your phone each day, and what apps are you spending the most time using? Furthermore, ask yourself some important questions such as, what do you love about your phone? What don't you love about your phone? What changes do you notice in yourself, positive or negative, when you spend a lot of time on your phone? All of this behavioral assessment is setting you up to reimagine what your relationship with your phone could look like and how it can change for the better. So anytime you reach for your phone, you can try asking these questions. What for? What are you picking up your phone to do? Why now? 
Why are you picking up your phone at this specific moment? And what else? What else besides picking up your phone could you be doing right now? Turn unconscious habits into conscious decisions. One of the most interesting ideas that I found in this how section of the book is around reframing. Specifically, reframing your FOMO, fear of missing out. Instead of focusing on what you're missing out on when you're not on social media, think about what you're missing out IRL in real life when you're spending lots of time on social media. In other words, what are you missing out on in the world right in front of you in this exact moment? Perhaps you're missing out on your child gleefully playing. Guilty. Or the dog begging to be walked. Double guilty. Or face-to-face time with your significant other. Triple guilty. You can probably see a trend. While we may be missing out on the updates of our online personas when we're technologically disconnected, we're missing out on updating our own lives when we're technologically connected. Disconnect to reconnect. So here is a big question for myself and for perhaps you listening, if you're thinking about all of this and that it makes a lot of sense to you. Let me ask you this. If we're merely consumers of the world and not creating our own world, whose world are we living in? We can reframe digital FOMO to spending more time actively creating our own lives versus passively consuming others' lives. Price also makes a great point about a different type of FOMO that exists online, running rampant on social media especially. She says this, It's the jealousy that occurs when you compare your own life to someone else's social media feed. The irony, of course, is that most people's feeds do not accurately represent the proportion of their lives they actually spend skiing or surfing or sitting in hot tubs with models. And also many people with enormous social media followings are actually paid to glamorize their lives. If someone's existence looks too good to be true, it probably is. I agree, Catherine. Likewise, there's no use comparing your behind-the-scenes footage with someone else's highlight reel. There's nothing inherently wrong with the highlight reel, but it's an important distinction from reality that should be consciously noted before opening social media apps. I recently saw an image that summed up the social media experience for me incredibly well. It was a picture of an apple looking into a mirror. The reflection of the apple in the mirror was shiny, red, perfect. However, on the other side of the apple, the side that wasn't visible to the mirror, was a secret. There was a big bite out of the apple. What a perfect representation of what happens all too often as we scroll, compare, judge, scroll, scroll, stop, read, feel guilty, feel pain, feel inadequacy, feel jealousy scroll, scroll, and so on, until we get tired or remember the reason we picked up our phones in the first place. We close the app and feel that deep sense of something nagging at us, something in our gut that we just can't quite put a finger on, knowing that this is a feeling that often accompanies a scroll sesh, trying to ignore it and move on with our day. 
Another important part of this section about how to break up with your phone was Price's prompting to rediscover what you like to do in your offline life. She says this, If you use your phone less, you're going to end up with more time. Unless you have some sense of how you want to be spending this reclaimed time, you're likely going to feel anxious and possibly a bit depressed, and you'll be at risk of sliding right back into your old habits. She suggests asking yourself what you've always loved to do, what you've always wanted to do if you had more time, as well as who you'd like to spend more time with. Once you've asked yourself these questions, make a list of several fun things you could do offline in the very near future. Having a list on hand helps to diffuse any excuses you may tell yourself. For me, this includes lots of time in the outdoors and spending time with my little ones, getting fresh air, running around, having fun. So here we are. We've made it. Now comes the hardest and most important part of the process. Putting down the phone and not picking it back up again for a while. Price offers this advice. Just as intermittent fasting has been shown to be good for our physical health, regular short phone fasts, what I call fasts with a PH, are essential for our emotional and intellectual health. As you well know, being constantly tethered to our phones exhausts our brains. They need a regular phone-free time to recover and rejuvenate. And as is also true with our other potentially addictive behaviors, it's important to take a break once in a while to just prove that you can. It's worth revisiting one of Price's quotes I highlighted earlier in this episode. Our goal isn't abstinence. It's consciousness. Setting your sights on unrealistic or impractically long time frames away from your phone isn't helpful. You don't have to spend entire days away from your phone to achieve progress. She also suggests, whatever you do, remember that the point is not to punish yourself. It's to make yourself feel good. In other words, don't ask yourself, when could I force myself to take a break from my phone? Instead, ask yourself, when would I like to take a break from my phone? Price believes that the more little fasts you intentionally take for about 30 minutes at a time during the day, the less you'll be drawn to unconsciously or habitually reaching for your phone throughout the rest of the day. So there's no one-size-fits-all or one-and-done solution to make the most of our relationships with our phones. Truthfully, it seems like a bit of a silly concept to have to break up with an inanimate object. But while our phones are just objects, they are also so much more because there is so much emotion attached. The people and places where we love, work, and play are contained within. Like many relationships in our lives, it's a work in progress that must be reevaluated again and again to determine what's working, what's not working and how improvements can be made. I'm going to give this a real go. Starting today, I vow to act on Price's advice and do my best to cultivate my life in lieu of consuming others' lives. I want to spend my limited time with my young family and my friends in less of a blur, working diligently to slow down time, striving for intentionality when it comes to my attention. 
and my two-year-old's recent not-so-subtle tether to my phone and my husband's phone, screaming for emojis being the first thing she does when she wakes up and the last thing she yells at night before exhaustion takes over. This is an eye-opening reflection on the amount of time and attention our phones are getting in the presence of our children, as well as their telling addictive nature, even in the eyes of a human who can't yet use a toilet. So I invite you to try it too. For 30 minutes, try fasting as a great step to becoming more conscious of the attention our phones passively command, and in turn, actively command that our attention be paid to our consciousness. So phone, it's official. We need a break.